Welcome to the Make the Future podcast. I'm your host, Jacques Beauvais, Dean of the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Ottawa. Join me as I connect with our alumni, students, industry partners, and researchers to explore the future of technology and innovation and how, through creativity and collaboration, we can make our own future. They say the future is coming, but that's not true. The future is already here. And it's relentless. It's not going to wait for you to catch up. How will we live in this future? How will we make sense of it? To define our course, we need a new perspective. One that engages our curiosity, that activates our imagination, one that defies the conventional. To own the future, we need to do more than just see it. We need to make it. So welcome to today's podcast. Uh, today I'm once again joined with my special co-host from the Faculty of Arts, Dean Kevin Key. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Jacques. And we want to discuss how, as academics, we see the combination of digital humanities, creativity with engineering, and how it can impact entrepreneurship, the digital tech and media industrial sector. So in addition to Kevin this morning, we're joined by Professor Hanan Anis, who's professor in electrical and computer engineering at the University of Ottawa, and she holds the NSERC chair in entrepreneurial Entrepreneurial Engineering Design, and she's our Coordinator of Entrepreneurship and Engineering in the faculty. Hi, Hanan. Hi, Jacques. And we're also joined by Constance Crompton, an Assistant Professor at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Arts. She's the Canada Research Chair in Digital Humanities with research interests in data, data modeling, code as a reputational medium, queer history, and Victorian popular culture. Hi, Constance. Hi, it's great to be here. So, um, as I said, we want to talk about how we're seeing things right now in terms of combining digital humanities with engineering. So, so that big subject then, digital humanities combined with engineering to impact entrepreneurship in the digital tech and media industrial sector. How does the chair in digital humanities see that, Tony? What does that mean to you? Oh, well, I must say, like, there's so many of us who, like, get into uh, academia, both for, like, the the research side of things and the student side of things. And it's like th when these topics come together that we actually get to bring like students and research together. Um, so I guess like one of the things that kind of excites me about this is the the, the opportunities to collaborate. Um, in the digital humanities program, we've got uh, you know students who are coming from English and from communication, but also from psychology who are taking the minor and computer science. And it's the, the chance for them to see that they can like learn from each other's like habits of mind, but also skills um, you know sort of all together so there's there's some of that like cross-pollination and getting to do that both in the classroom and then in like research lab settings um, it's pretty exciting and how does that compare to what 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 you saw happening kind of when you came into the academy came into the university I think I definitely belong to that like generation of uh, sort of like a second wave of Canadian digital humanities folks and we're all sort of like largely self-taught like you know there weren't formal courses available to us, or we'd have to sort of, you know, travel and, like, learn sort of via workshops. And uh, for lots of folks who were starting out in digital humanities in the, you know, sort of early 2000s, it was sort of a, like, you were, like, alone of your kind, you know? Or, like, people would say, like, well, that's nice that you're using computers, but, like, let us know when you're doing some real research. And I, I feel like that's, sort of, like, really 
changed, that there are, you know, sort of like networks and that there's sort of reaching across the aisle and all sorts of things that, that mean that we can work together and that, you know, students can identify as digital humanities folks, but so can, can faculty and, and people know what they're talking about and can get energized. Being at U Ottawa, it's kind of nice because you, you see all these words on the other side of the language spectrum and bricolage mm -hmm. and au fur et à mesure are two expressions that I think really capture what it was like for all of us who were on the humanities side really interested in doing this kind of work. Mm -hmm. there, weren't, there weren't maps, right? There weren't guidelines. So you just kind of built it. And along the way, you made all of these incredible mistakes. But it was funny what you were saying. The student response is what, what grabbed me right away and what always carried me through, oh, well, you know, this is not how we're set up or that space isn't going to work. My favorite moment, maybe all time in my teaching career is, and this is at my former institution, so I'm a Canada Research Chair in Digital Humanities, and I walk down the hall to the Computing Science Department and I say, let's work together. And they say, oh, that's intriguing. And it doesn't really go anywhere. Like it's a generalized conversation, everyone's very quiet. The next day, someone walks to my office and says, I, I didn't really want to get into it in front of the group, but yeah, it would be great if we could co-teach a course, because this is August, right? So we decide that the software development course in the third year for computing science and my course on history and technology, we're going to put them together. So we come up with this project, and the project is, this is 2006, seven. Uh, build a computer game about a history subject that relates to the War of 1812 because we're all gearing up in Niagara for, you know, the 200th anniversary of the War of 1812. And so we get our two students, we have our first class, and we say, this is what this course is going to look like on each side. And then the second class, we bring everyone together. So you've got this room of like 80 people in the, the lecture hall, and we present the project. And this is what the year is going to look like. And there's silence. And I think, oh, well, let's see how this goes. And then a hand goes up in the back, back row. And this guy says, who owns the IP for this? <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean? He's like, no, no, I, we're going to build all this stuff. Like, who owns it? I said, well, you do. Is there a policy? And I said, well, no, no, but like, I'll, I'll write a policy. How is it going to be marketed when we're done? I, I don't know. I haven't thought that far. Well, you know, can we build a marketing plan for this part? I said, yeah. And it goes on and on and on, like endlessly, all these questions. He wasn't the questions. artist in the group. He's not the artist in the group. Long story short, this guy starts a company as an undergrad, goes out to Silicon Valley, and he's just like he's on fire doing incredible things. But for me, it was that moment in the classroom where I thought, oh, Maybe this was a huge mistake, you know, like those 10 seconds where everyone's processing, and then boom, it goes the opposite direction. That's cool. They just want to take it as far as they can possibly take it. So you use the word bricolage, and so now in the Faculty of Arts, you have you have a makerspace. You, you have some space for the students to do some bricolage like that. But we've had it for a few years in the Faculty of Engineering, and I'm kind of curious, Hanan, when you started that, what was the motivating factor for you when you started with the makerspace? What was the need you were trying to, to address? Well, I mean, the makerspace started by a complete coincidence. And uh, the way it started off is that I had a student, um, and his name is Frank Bouchard, uh, that came to me, wanted to do a project with me. 
And I said, aren't you doing something for outreach? And he said, yeah, I'm the manager of outreach. And I said, why don't we put an entrepreneurial curriculum on uh, for kids, you know, teenagers? And he had never done that before. And I thought, okay, given he's the manager, we do something useful for his career. We did that, and every week we would improve the past week's camp curriculum. And I go, at the end of the week, sit with him to analyze if these kids have learned what we were giving them. So it's sort of business model canvas, all diluted for kids, right? And we're trying this experiment. And every time I go, this was teen tech camps. And I see all these fancy equipment that seemed fancy to me. They were all 3D printers and Arduinos. And mind you, he had five of them. So this was the extent. But I said, what do you do with this equipment? And he said, I put them in storage for the whole academic year because he had no space. For so them. he was using it in the summer for those He was using it for, for the fun stuff. Yeah. 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 So I said to him, okay, how about we use it during the year and we go to the dean, Claude Lagu was the dean back then, and tell him, give us a space. We'll use it as a makerspace during the year. And in the summer, you use it for your summer camp. And he said, yeah, that would be a great idea. So we marched to Claude and asked him. And he liked the idea, and we put a plan together. And we started in a very small place with five 3D printers, mm. right? That's really the extent of the story. And it, it was not integrated with any courses and anything like that. But I, I mean, at that time, I decided, okay, let's do some research. And we looked at makerspaces all over North America in universities. And Georgia Tech was the example that I thought, I want to be Georgia Tech when we grow up, <laughs> essentially, right? And they, they started with one room, and they expanded, and they have their sort of innovation, innovation space or whatever it's called, uh, a whole building right now, right? Mm. Invention studio, that's what it's called. So I thought, okay, you know, um, and they had this model of starting it based on students, that students are running the show, the strategic direction is by a professor, but really it's a student based. So that's, that's really how it started. Um, I wanted to make sure that it's relevant for the faculty, so we integrated very quickly with the curriculum. And that was the role of NSERC when my chair came mm -hmm. for NSERC. This is how we kind of integrated it with the curriculum. Um, the one thing that I, as I heard the folks in uh, Georgia Tech, I realized that they are engineering centric. And as I interviewed other places all over the country, I realized that the more successful ones, the ones that are totally open. Mm -hmm. okay. So this is how we opened it to anybody in the university as well as the community at large. And uh, the community at large is something that everybody was reluctant to do initially, but it's one of uh, the sources of our strengths that yeah. were. It's actually very cool, that opening to the community, because I was out in Canada in the early days that I was here at U Ottawa, and I was talking to uh, 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 an upper management engineer in one of the companies. and I, and I 
and I'm talking about the makerspace and everything we were doing and the STEM building is coming and we'll have all that. And says, you know, the makerspace is open on the Sunday for people in the community. And he just looks at me and says, yeah, I know. I've been there three times. I've done three projects over mm. there. So people do come. You've got very young people who come to use it, I think. And you've got some more established people who are making use of that. And today, that was, what year was it when you started? We started in 2014. So that was in 2014. Yeah. The story says that there were less than 10 students making use of it at the time. Yeah. So we're early 2019, and we now have around 1,000 students in the design courses making use of the Maker Lab and the facilities, and we've got around 2,000 people per year making use of the makerspace. Huge growth. So the demand is there. So did Connie talked about how the generation of students we have now um, – they don't, I'm not sure how you said it. I was kind of interpreted, they're, they're not fitting into the old molds. They have a new approach to bring in digital. Th Do you see that in our students too in engineering? Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I think, I think the students are really, give them an opportunity and they will rise to mm -hmm. the opportunity, yeah. you know? And this is, you see this all the time, the light bulbs are turning on and then they're coming with ideas that you could never imagine, right? So that's sort of, I mean, this is why I'm sort of very intrigued with multidisciplinary mm -hmm. uh, studying because we're not one dimensional. I mean, a student could have chosen art or engineering, but they have interest in many things. And the more we can foster that interest, the more you know, the student becomes whole, their own thing. Because mm. we don't know what will happen. We can see what will happen in five, ten years, but we don't know in 30 years, which would be within yeah. their career, yeah. whatever that is going to be the next big thing. Uh, we just don't know. Yeah. I didn't, so the end of my story is that, that uh, I say to the students, you're going to publicly display your games. They'll be... Uh, your kind games, a, you said? Yeah, because they built these computer games, okay. right? And um, we're going to have a big event, and there's going to be cookies and donuts and the whole thing, and I'm going to invite people. And then I think, oh, my gosh, like my dean's showing up. Are they going to clear I invite them? the president. Yeah. This is going to be a total schmozzle. And uh, we book this big lecture hall, because we have 70, 80 students. We book a lecture hall for 300 people. And I opened the door that night, like just full of angst and dread. It's full. <laughs> Grandparents, <laughs> girlfriends, like boyfriends it's too. Crazy <laughs> boyfriends. It's like, you invited your grandparents? Yeah. You know, they were just so excited. But that was the same thing with the students that did the, oh, the STEAM projects last summer. Grandparents, I, yeah, and family, yeah. and everybody. Look, when I went, I, I think it's, I've talked about it so much, just so you know. Like, I was blown away. I've been blown away every year, but especially last year by the big design day. Yeah. Like yeah. you have hundreds of people and they're all so juiced and excited. And I think I've told you this story because um, my wife's uh, mom was the only one who went to university in her family and she did late in life. And so she has a sister, they live up in New Lisker and they come to you, Ottawa, it's like two years ago because their son wants to go to you in Ottawa engineering and it's so embarrassing, he needs to go to college. And how, how are we gonna pay for this and the whole thing? Dad cuts grass for the parks in New Liskard and mom, I think, works in a group home, right? And like, what are we gonna do? And 
And so we take them on campus. We do the whole tour. We go in. He's a swimmer, so we walk into the pool and we get mm. yelled at because we forgot to take our boots off. Okay. But we go in the makerspace. Boom. The kid lights up. Anyway, I started to cry because he won the makerspace competition. So there's Riley on the stage getting... Remember, and there was a team that won two yeah. prizes? Yeah. And I took a picture, and I sent it to, like, the whole Shade family. <laughs> oh, really? And there were tears, like, all mm. over Ontario. Because there's little Riley, you know, mom and dad are like, ah, why are we even wasting time coming to Ottawa for two or three days? And, you know, and the wow. whole bit. Beaming. Really? The kid's just beaming. And I thought, that's yeah. what this is all about. It yeah, is. Yeah. When I taught last year, Connie, what... What jumped out at me, and Hanan, you, you'll find this interesting too, was the students were loving the digital humanities stuff because of the creative side. And they said, this, this feels like the first time we can do it. But they're not, what's, what's striking for me is when student, a lot of art students show up to university, university is a lecture hall, it's a stage on a stage, which of course is amazing. And then what you're doing is, providing them opportunities to pursue what they really want to pursue, but in a different way. But the, the pathway isn't necessarily clear for them. How do you get them, how do you bring them along for ones who like want to be creative and have that, that desire and that interest, but that they haven't seen the pathway maybe in their first or second year because that's not necessarily how universities have done things in the past. And I think, too, coming from high school, the students all, haven't always had that experience of, like, the chance to collaborate or the chance to, like, you know, have something that's a bit broader and to define the scope themselves. But I can he he feel the hunger for that, like, in um, the students um, that – oh, do you know what? I'd like to back that up again. Um, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, there was a th – ah, I had a thing. I had a thing. Uh, well, anyway, uh, I'll, I'll continue on from here. I can tell with the students that there are some, like, you know, pain points for them and, and some things where they, they like the opportunity for creativity or, I mean, I've definitely two had students say to me, like, oh, every time we go to apply for a job, you know, it says, like, oh, you need to have had clients before or you need, you know, two years experience or whatever. And it's nice to be able to teach courses where students can see how their experience can fit into that, right? That, that oh, well, you know, this this year we're actually going to do some community service, you know, kind of stuff, or we're going to be doing some social innovation and entrepreneurship work, and you're going to have, you know, come out of this, like, you know, sort of with um, a client, or we're going to work on learning to collaborate. I mean, one of the things that I've heard from students, too, is, is as you've said, Kevin, that, like, a sense of, like, oh, we're, we're going to make things in this digital humanities course? Like, that's so novel. Um, but of course, actually, like making things as a way of knowing isn't like unique to the digital humanities, right? That's happening over in engineering, in the fine arts. Like, that's old news. Making things as a way of like understanding the world and and being that like you know sort of linchpin and and sending your work out into the world is, um, is something they're familiar with. So it's almost like just helping people use these methodologies in their own home discipline that can yeah, be a real. You too can do this. Yes. Yeah. And you don't have to do it all, right? That like. That's the other thing too with like large projects where like, you know, no one person is going to be the cook, the bottle washer, you know, the maitre d, and the person who sets the menu. So like, let's work together and and see how to divide up tasks so that you can practice before you go out. You know, you can practice working on teams. You can, you know, it's a safe place to do you, it. to try it out exactly yeah. to and level to fail. up. And yeah. To figure right. It, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. The stakes feel really high for the students, but. It's, yeah, it's better yeah, to try no, it out no. here yes. than to try it for the first time. That's a really good point. It's easy yeah. for us to say, oh, it's okay to fail. But for them, it's like, no, no, no. And we heard that earlier, too, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, that's right. 
no, no, this was serious stuff. And it was. Yeah. And we, there is a lot riding on this working out for them. How do students you see in the makerspace? Are they, are they worried about that sort of thing? Or are they more closer to that mindset? We just try stuff out in the makerspace. Does it bring a new way of thinking? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think culture is shifting. Uh, I mean, I have the benefit of seeing four years or five years of this, right? So I see the culture is shifting because, I mean, one of the things in engineering is that the program is, is very packed and they are used to sage on a stage model. Um, and it's, you know, they're very technical. And a lot of the engineering students come into engineering because they are very technical and mm. they are very good in math and physics and, and, and. Yeah. So um, there are some characteristics. And then you're telling them something completely different and you're throwing them off. And some of them say, ah, I don't like it. And then some of them, they start with, I don't like it, but they turn around. They persevere and they yeah. turn around. Yeah. And some of them, they naturally sort of like it. So uh, the, the people that really sit in the makerspace for many hours is where they identify with making and collaboration and openness and teamwork and so on. But even the people that don't like it, uh, I see a lot of, in our design courses, we work with a client and really working with someone who has a need actually is a very transformative experience, particularly when you work on accessibility. For an engineer mm -hmm. to work on accessibility, I see students wear tears, I see students not sleeping because they are really worried, not for me, but because they will, you know, uh, turn somebody down, mm -hmm. you know, like that, uh, you know, the failure is not their failure, it's what would happen to this person that is waiting for this gizmo of some sort. So I see a lot of that. And I have to say, I don't decrease that load of <laughs> you, don't you don't take stress. it off their shoulders no? <laughs> i keep on pushing pushing yeah. and i can tell you i had a group of students that were doing I'll give you a simple example um they were a very good group of students and they were doing a hand sanitizer for somebody who had some problem that he can't his hand is not steady so every time he goes and gets this purell or whatever it flows everywhere and he gets upset oh, okay. so they were doing something with a sensor and and for reasons they were an excellent group but for a reason outside of their control the client was sick didn't show up this and that they were delayed and on design day they did not have a prototype, working prototype. And even when they had my final class presentation, they didn't have it ready. And then they said to me, you know, we're going to continue this. We have to do this. So I had to actually, because I knew that they were a group that were a strong group, I said, don't waste your Christmas break. Please, you know, enjoy yourself and come back in January and finish it. 24th of December, I got a video from this group and saying, here, it's working. <laughs> we could not have Christmas before this person got their hand sanitizer. So, I mean, it talks to, this is sort of, 
it's not only being committed but also feeling that kind of uh, need yeah. to mm-hmm. fulfill somebody yeah. well the stakes when, are high right when we were talking with with the students who did the steam project who worked on surface tension what was interesting is the engineering student and i think it he, he was talking about he was approaching it as a technological project and and sarah from arts was saying that technology is 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 okay but you need to put mean, meaning into it and we tend to think about impact. Sometimes we use that word. We want to develop projects that have impact. That's why you work with the client and all that. Sarah was talking about meaning in the project. C- can you guys, Kevin and Connie, talk about what, what, what that means? What are you looking for when you're looking for meaning in the work of the, the students? Hmm. Well, I feel like so much of what we do is like, you know, we belong to this like long flow of like cultural, you know, history and that the students get the opportunity to like learn about that but then also to like intervene in it knowing like how we got here you know it's the like oh the way we live now that's not the way we've always lived we've got proof that we used to do things differently so we can do the future differently too like we're not kind of stuck here and I feel like that's like one of those those sort of like meaning making opportunities to sort of say oh well it, when I you know represent something in a sculpture this way I'm referring to this whole crazy past history mm. and maybe even like pushing back against it and like by making this this thing that looks, you know, so bizarre or fragmented or, you know, kind of wild, saying like we're going to have a different kind of future and like that's, you know, that's an exciting angle for them. Yeah, it's a, your question's a bit like the question, you know, what's the point of modern art? And the point of modern art is to help people see something in a different or new way and to become a different person as a result of that experience. And so... You know, the, the, the kind of beginning point there is the self-expression of the artist, having an insight and then sharing it and wanting to transform other people. And I come at this from history. So essentially, we're saying, you know, as, as we move forward in time, we have cultural knowledge and understanding changes in transformative ways. And, and where I start with my students typically is saying, your experience is quite remarkable because there have been some major transformative changes. And historians are always super cautious about this stuff because the world is always changing. Like, who cares? No big deal. You know, we're, we're always poo-pooing that concept. But with students, I think we can say something did change uh, in 1991, 92, 93. You know, the internet takes life, uh, takes wing with the World Wide Web. And the world starts to change as a result, and you are this, you know, a generation now that is growing up in a very different way. And, of course, we've always had networks, and you can talk about electrification as being, you know, a major step in all of this, Mm -hmm. but something special does happen. Okay, well, you're growing up in that experience now, and you can frame that in a negative way or a positive way. The negative way would be... Well, you are the first generation that has essentially been used by large social media companies um, for the purposes of taking your personal data <laughs> in an exchange of you get a service. Uh, okay, that's the negative. The positive is you've had opportunities to, to express yourself and communicate in ways that people didn't have in the past. But the, then the point that I get to pretty quickly with them is, well, what does this mean for you? Because your experience of the world has been fundamentally different from mine. I remember that amazing moment where there was email. Oh, that was weird. And then there was this thing called the World Wide Web. And then, but I've come at this as an immigrant. But the point is, you have something to offer. So what is it going to be? What are you going to say? And 
people will be transformed by our understanding of your experience and and the world hopefully will be pushed in a better place. Mm. So this is not a small deal. Like this is a, a really big deal and you have to seize this opportunity. And then the question is, well, do they want to seize it or not? But the challenge, it was interesting as you were talking, Hanan, I was thinking, and Connie, I want to throw this question at you. In the same way that engineers are self-selecting, I'm really good at math and physics, and so I'll take engineering in university, and that'll be my way of, of viewing the world. Art students typically are the ones for whom those harder sciences are hard, and they find real meaning and, and ability uh, in, in expression, typically written expression, right? So history and those humanities subjects in schools, and then they end up in arts with us. How do you then work with them when they pretty quickly realize that, oh, they are outside their comfort zone? This is not, they, they didn't self-select to be doing this kind of digital humanities stuff, and they, you know, computers are, what do you, what do you do at that point? With how does that all work? Well, that like I think like you know helping um, students see like what skills they bring to the table. So it's I mean it's great also working with like the upper level art students who are like, uh, you know, who are like excellent at research, excellent at writing, and being able to say like, oh, you can like really do those things now. Like let's push that a little bit further, but with content you really care about. I think like that can often be the hook. You know that like well then let's. I mean I know. Um, uh, Jada Watson in music, you know, does these, you know, um, has the students do these amazing like big data projects that look at like song data for, you know, 20 and 30 year periods and like to really see like how country music has changed, how hip hop has changed, you know, in their lifetimes where, where students are really invested in the content that makes a, you know, a big difference. Or um, the digital humanities uh, capstone class uh, this week was in the University of Ottawa archives. And there, like, the students are, you know, fairly sort of, like, technologically sophisticated by the time they get there. But these students hadn't been to this archive before and were, like, you know, interested to hear the ghost stories of the um, of the university or to, like, look at the keys for the first building that was on campus that has since been burned down, but that, you know, has survived. So getting them to build out projects where they're using their tech skills, but the content, like, really speaks to their arts interest is sort of key. But I think, I mean, I think you're quite right, Hanan, too, though, about the, like, the whole person experience. Like, you know, you hear that, like, you know, people are in engineering, but they're also learning empathy. Or, you know, people are learning these, uh, you know, solo research skills and collaboration skills. So there's, there's sort of a uh, sort of whole person opportunity at the university to not just be there for the courses, but to to learn all these other things that, that make it easier to go out in the world. Yeah, and I mean, I think more and more, like in my generation, I think you could have afforded to be one-dimensional in technology. Uh, you know, you could live your life in an industry where you're the techie person and you're the nerd and you're fine and you have a great career that I'm an engineer and you see people saying that I'm an engineer I don't need to understand anything in arts but then you know I pose this question to my students when you know a, a lot of them are still in the mindset we're the techie people we don't need to learn about these things and we start on the notion of ethics right mm -hmm. okay you're going to work in Tesla and how about I tell you that, you know, you're programming this driverless car and I tell you that there are two options. The cheap option is, you know, 
it's free for all, it kills whoever it kills. But if you pay $20,000 more, you kill everybody other than the driver. How would you react? And everybody is furious. And I said, well, you know, but you're the software guy. You do what you're told. You shouldn't think. And, you know, of course, you could see them really being... And every time I go through these different scenarios, they say, oh, you're making our brain tired. And, you know, <laughs> by the end of it, and I say, but you're the engineer. You should yeah. be only technical. And, uh, you know, I'm playing devil advocate to the maximum. But, but the, the point here is that we are going to be faced, they are going to be faced more and more with things that is not purely engineering. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to be alone in it, right? There's like a, you know, a long tradition of thinking through these questions and there are like pathways to train up to be able to, 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 to push back or to like decide, you know, how, how that driverless car is gonna work. That isn't just the like, oh, well, you're an engineer and you're all on your own and you'll have to work it out from ground zero by yourself. But the typical yeah. path of an engineer doesn't expose them enough yeah. to this. And they don't have the training to actually sort of argue these things right, right. enough to ha make up. So, uh, you know, I get a lot of difficulty being expressed because while an artist, probably somebody from the humanities side, can come and at least logically argue it much more. And this is where I see that today the humanities is much more important than when I was going through university. Mm -hmm. so, so I was going to ask you a question, okay. but I, I think maybe you already answered it because what, what we all tend to say, and we're not wrong, is I haven't really got time for this. And what you were saying earlier, and it's obvious certainly to an outsider as well, is this is an accredited program in engineering. There's a lot that needs to happen. And whoa, now we're adding this cultural component, like, well, you got to think about the, the decisions. And as a, you know, in my case, a 49-year-old white male writing code, I'm going to make cultural decisions in that context that will have an influence that might be different from somebody else. I mean, and that whole concept, like, that's time-consuming. And I, my question, uh, maybe I'll, I'll seed the answer, because what I heard you say was, going back a few minutes, well, you just have to do it. Like, maybe... Maybe there is real value to a lecture on the ethics of coding, but maybe there's also value or as much or more to, uh, you just have to get in there and practice this and you start to see, and it's so the time is spent in a project context. Am I getting it right? Like how do, how do, we, how do we square this? There's a lot to do, not a lot of time, and now we're adding this whole other content and practice piece yeah i mean a it needs to be done but us as sort of academics we really need to push it within the context of multidisciplinary mm -hmm. uh, because the way i see it is we have what is called complementary studies and complementary studies is a lot of sort of one-dimensional and i'm not sort of saying in a negative way to the students, but a lot of the students say, these are the easy courses. I'll go and take mm -hmm. this course, and I'm going to memorize these things, and I'm going to get the mark, and I don't learn anything, and I don't want to learn anything. It's just these easy complementary studies, right? 
And what you see is that this is something that frowned upon by the students and they see no value of this. So you actually have not benefited the students in the way you benefit, you need to benefit. But the kind of work that sort of Sarah and Devonch has done has transformed them. It transformed them by giving them this opportunity to work together and learn from each other and have this appreciation this sort of what I would call the multidisciplinary, uh, you know, appreciation. So I might not know any of the history, but I am humble enough to know what I don't know. So if I have this situation, I'll go and say, Kevin, can you help me even think about it? While if I'm totally ignorant, I wouldn't even bother because I think I'm full of myself and I think I know it all and I can read a book and figure it out and it cannot be done. So to me, the projects and the multidisciplinary studies, it's just like culture, you know, you think that you're from a certain culture and this is the best culture in the world, you know, and then you go and see the other culture and guess what, they are as good as you and, you know, you learn what you don't know and you have a humbleness and an appreciation. So how do we do that? I got I got another question. How do we do this in the context of the increased pressure on students to succeed? Our students are coming in. Uh, the work world has changed. The pathway forward is not the straight one of 30 years ago. Uh, in the gig economy, there are no guarantees. And university is increasingly expensive. You know, we could enumerate a whole laundry list of challenges that they're bringing in that are, look quite different from, say, 30 years ago. And what you've said is, and what we heard in the, this, with the students, there's this moment of, oh my gosh, this is not going to work, and I can't stand these people. Like, these engineers, these artists are driving me crazy. And it's that moment that's the, that's like the inflection point, or whatever metaphor we want to use, that is the moment where the learning is about to take this great leap forward. But it's a moment of being face-to-face -face with failure, which carries a really high emotional cost. How do you deal with that? <laughs> like you're trying to promote it in yeah. a way because there's going to be a learning experience out of it, but it's incredibly stressful and, and the pressure is to succeed. In the DH program, we have been like very upfront about like, uh, we expect you to fail so much so that like one of the courses has a fail blog where you are expected to document the way in which you have failed and pick yourself back up. And like when you ran this and it didn't work, how did you troubleshoot it? Like who did you talk to? Like so that the students know that that's baked in and they don't have to try to pretend to save face or like you'll only get an A if you can kind of have this mask that like you understand how to do everything from the get-go. Because I think some of that challenge comes from the, the pressure of the expense of the university and, and the idea that grades themselves are the end goal, right? That like I think encourages students to be sort of conservative in, in their thinking, where if, uh, you know, if building something or, you know, um, trying something new and proving that you've, like, pushed the limit or pushed through that frustration, right, built your tolerance for frustration, that that, that can be a valuable outcome to students that isn't just a, did you walk a very narrow path to the A, you know. So, how about you, Hanan? How do you answer his question? Yeah, I, I mean... The, the thing is, the students come to university and we kind of give them a one dimension. They're coming multi-dimension, I have to say, right? 
and I'm talking more on engineering compared to other places where we tell them you're an engineer you're an engineer you know and by third year they're kind of believing that they are one dimension they are the engineers this is your identity <laughs> right uh -huh. and i you know this is why i love first and second year courses because you can actually have an impact because they are not set in their ways maybe a little bit i was good in math rah 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 i'm going to engineering but but i'm just saying they're a little bit more malleable you know mm. you can do stuff so to me really the benefit is to try and do this early on mm -hmm. before they are set. Mm. And, um, you know, a guy like Devange, for example, you know, went around trying to get these opportunities. I see this all the time in entrepreneurship. You know, the student is coming thinking that their idea is the right way. And then they go, go and speak to clients and they come back. No, the client told me no, you know. Yeah. So that kind of failure that is built in in entrepreneurship. Um, so okay. it's a little bit similar to, yeah, to what yeah. you were talking about. It's more yeah. that, like the social innovation and UX yeah. angles are interesting too because it's it's actually all about other people. Yeah. Right. It's not about some like pre prescribed rubric you actually yeah. have to be able to engage with others so. yeah and a lot of people a lot of students say this was a life-changing course mm. because that kind of my way you know <laughs> my way is so what do we do over the next couple of years do we do more of what we're be we've been doing or is there any other radical change we need to bring in to how we're working how do you see it henan yeah i mean i uh I really think that we need to do more uh, multidisciplinary work. That would be my, and real multidisciplinary mm -hmm. in a sense that in the classroom, working together, yeah. um, you know, with an open-ended projects that well, are really- Immersive multidisciplinary yeah. in a way. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that it doesn't need to be too many. I mean, in reality, there is a program and there is mm -hmm. this, but I, I mean, few of them, I would, to me, a spine of multidisciplinary education mm -hmm. would be what I would be thinking of over a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Over a longer period of time, we don't know what jobs would be there. We really don't. Yeah. Um, and we do know that whatever we're teaching today is irrelevant in 20 years, yes. right? But the the sort of, you know, and I hate that term, but those softer skills are, is what is going to stay with them. The ability to uh, be creative, the ability to be critical thinkers, you know, the, the simple critical thinking will be automated. The more complex <laughs> critical thinking will not. Yeah. So how, you know, how am I going to, the only thing I know is that creativity would be important. Uh, the only thing I know is the communication skills would be important. The mm -hmm. only thing I know is the complex, the system thinking would be important. Uh, but I don't know what is it. And I always say I've spent most of my, my career as undergraduate student learning about vacuum tubes, right? I've learned about vacuum tubes for three years. And the guy that taught me vacuum tubes over my undergraduate 
he was so passionate and he thought the world revolved around vacuum tubes. And <laughs> back then it was this transistor was this little thing that taught us at the very end, right? This poor guy, you know, he's probably dead by now, but this poor guy didn't realize that vacuum tubes are now. My kids didn't saw it in the museum and said, what is this mom? You know, so I would expect that whatever technical stuff we're teaching today is going to be irrelevant. What is relevant is the ability to learn, the ability to think. And these are unfortunately not engineering skills. Yeah. <laughs> what about indigenous humanities? Oh, well, I, I definitely have, you know, I know your, your question was like, oh, like, well, do we need to like make a radical shift and sort of change the end? And I feel like I've, you know, joined the university almost like after that shift has started happening. So I, I would almost have this like, oh, stay the course, right? Because there's this like ferment and, you know, reaching across with things like Going in the right direction or, and exactly. we need to complete that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, it's underway, you know, it's it's bubbling up. I open this underneath the sink and there it is bubbling away, you know. So I have a little gift for both of you. Oh, and wow. Anand, and everything that she does, <laughs> she doesn't have one of these because they're very Anand rare. doesn't Ooh. have one of these. Anand doesn't have one of wow. these. Wow. So you need to open them. These are boxes for the pens. And these are, I don't know if you know the story, you weren't around back then, but when Hanan and I did launch, well, Hanan launched a Makerspace <laughs> challenge, and Kenan was, Kevin was yes. coming over there, yes. and you need to pull it out. Now I know I have a heart because it's melting. This is the steam pen. <laughs> this wonderful. This what? is something yeah. that I gave to Kevin when he came over, <laughs> and I wanted to make a gift. He was our yeah. guest in the Faculty of Engineering, and I, I thought, I'm going to give this in front of everybody. Yeah. And so I was hoping he had a sense of humor. <laughs> and it, 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 it actually test. originates at one point. We're, we're Sunday morning. We're sending SMS messages to each other. And, uh, and I write to Kevin. And I say, Kevin, you're this arts guy. How can you handle this technology, this SMS technology? It's really digital. It's complex. <laughs> and he texts us back. It's easy. I just write everything down in crayon first. And then <laughs> I transfer it into the... So then I said, okay, the present I need to make, use the, the faculty pen. Yeah. But keep the digital tip yep. and put the art tip at the other side. And that's the steam pen. So there are very few around. Kevin, until very recently, Kevin was the only guy who Until two one. hours ago, I was so, the only so, one. So we, we gave one to uh, Devanj and to Sarah to thank them. And now you have the steam pen. So unfortunately, I need to, to bring our discussion to an end. It's been extremely interesting. I, I look at Kevin and I think we could have... Uh, we talk about this for, for, for a while, yeah. So I want to <laughs> thank do this again. you, Hanan, and I want to thank you, Connie, for the extremely interesting discussion. I want to thank you, Kevin, for co-hosting this today. And thank you to those of you listening to this episode. I really hope that it was a, as enlightening for you as it really was for me that allowed us to really, in a way, verbalize the things that we're doing and really name, hey, I'm going to use a social science expression, I'm going to allowed us to name the things that we're doing and so thank you we're changing you you are changing me it's a scary thing so so thank you so much salut à tous and see you next time before we finish i'd like to thank you the listeners for joining us for today's discussion if you have comments or questions please email us at genie.engineering at uottawa.ca that's G-E-N-I-E dot engineering at uottawa.ca or visit us at our faculty webpage, engineering.uottawa.ca. I also want to thank everyone who contributed to the writing, production, and editing of this podcast, including Francis Bertrand Lafrenière, Valérie Sanson, and Carl Borns. Salut à tous, see you next time. 
To own the future, we need to do more than just see it. We need to make it.